Colleagues, welcome back to the office. It's Steve and welcome to the CPE Today podcast. We're going to get started with our podcast presentation here just in a moment. But before we do, I'd like to share some insight on how you can receive credit for watching today's presentation. There are two options. You can either watch live as it's being recorded through Zoom, more on that here in a moment, or you could be watching or listening on demand wherever you happen to receive content. We distribute our show through YouTube, SoundCloud, Facebook, our website, and many other places. Now, if you happen to be watching on demand on your own schedule, after watching or listening to today's class, head on over to cpetoday.com and locate today's course page. Uh, you can find our course code by looking at the footer of the presentation to see the link presented there. And it will also be mentioned throughout the presentation on multiple occasions. After com purchasing today's class, you'll complete a short five question quiz on what was discussed in today's presentation. And upon passing that your certificate for your CPE credits will be automatically generated and available for download. In addition to your purchase, you can also download copies of today's presentation, learning materials. You can ask the presenter questions and more. Now, if you happen to be watching live as it's being recorded through Zoom, your attendance will be confirmed through attendance prompts, which will occur every 12 to 20 minutes and approximately four per hour. They'll pop up automatically. And when a prompt comes up, please choose a response to confirm your attendance. It doesn't actually matter what you choose as long as you choose something as your response will confirm your engagement with our presentation. Attendance prompts might not be announced, so please keep an eye out for them. Now, as long as you've com uh, completed at least 75% of the attendance prompts, you will receive full credit for our presentation. Your completion certificate will be delivered to you by email within two business days of the event. You can always visit cpetoday.com if you have any questions or issues with your certificate. After our presentation today, we'd love to know what you think. Uh, there will be a course evaluation that will automatically pop up. It should take you anywhere from one to three minutes to complete, and your feedback will be used to help us produce better content in the future. Now, if you have any questions or comments throughout the presentation, we'd love to know what they are. Please use the chat or the Q&A functionality to let us know what you think, or if you have any questions on the materials that are being presented. Also, please feel free to share your experience, knowledge, and insight with the class. If you have any technical issues, you can also use that functionality to ask for help. You can always find great content at cpetoday.com. We have a variety of self-study and live courses from all topics, accounting, audit, personal development, Excel, QuickBooks, and more, you name it. Check out cpetoday.com. And the CPE Today podcast is made available Tuesdays and Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific. And you can always find great content being discussed in that podcast every single week. If you happen to be a new user, listener, viewer of the CPE Today podcast, thank you so much for coming. Welcome. We're ecstatic and happy to have you. How about you get a free credit on us? Use coupon code ONEFREEPODCAST at checkout to get a free credit for today's class. We're going to go ahead and get started with our presentation here in the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and enjoy our presentation. Colleagues, welcome back to the office and welcome to part two of our presentation today of an accountant's guide to blockchain and cryptocurrency. Now, 
If you haven't checked out part one, you might want to go ahead and do so. And in part one, we went ahead and discussed the introduction to blockchain and cryptocurrency, understanding what these different technologies are, how they function, where they are being used, the different major uh, versions of this, um, both public and private, public being tools and services such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, private being services such as Hyperledger Fabric or Amazon Quantum Ledger Database and more. And we also talked through some of the benefits and risks of using these technologies. Now, in the second episode of this, in the second part, we're going to go ahead and take a deep dive into mining and staking, understanding how these um, function as part of the underlying technology that supports blockchain. And in, in a nutshell, I mean, this is really what that blockchain uh, underlying tech is, is verification and validation of entries. And so I really want you to get a good sense of how these technologies operate. And we're also going to take a look at some of the other major topics inside of blockchain and crypto that are kind of ancillary. They sit next to many of the things that we're going to talk about here, um, including things such as the concept of decentralized finance or DeFi, smart contracts, comparing and contrasting coin and tokens, uh, as well as uh, things like, uh, for example, stable coins or centrally bank digital currency coins and more. Um, and some of the other major topics that I think could help you utilize uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain inside of an organization. All right, folks. Well, without further ado, let's go ahead and get back into our presentation. Now, mining is the process of calculating a block, okay? And if you remember our, our example that we talked through in the first episode here, a block is a collection or a batch of transactions that once validated gets added to the blockchain, just like a transaction will get written, written into a page of a ledger, and then all the pages combined of that ledger make up the ledger book. Same thing here, okay? Uh, blockchain at its core is a great example of batch processing and a batch is a block and a block is a batch. A block represents a series of transactions sequentially added, uh, each one representing moving money from column A to column B, transacting between a vendor and a customer and more. And the process of calculating this batch, settling this batch, uh, is mining. Okay, Mining is batch settlement and batch settlement is mining in the context of cryptocurrency and blockchain. And so when we do this, um, the transactions are uh, processed through. We are looking, making sure that the transactions are valid, that uh, they meet the strict cryptographic standards that are expected for blockchain, uh, that uh, you know people have the money that they say they're going to have, the coin that they say they're going to have, the address that they're sending something to is a valid address and more. And so uh, it's also the process of adding new cryptocurrency units in a public blockchain into pub public circulation. So when you mine transactions as a miner, you will get service fees related to that transaction. And certain people, if they are the first, for example, to solve the batch, to process that batch, they will also be rewarded with what we refer to as a block reward, which are new Bitcoin or new Ethereum units. And those new units... Uh, the person can either hold or they can sell them. They can enter them into the blockchain for other people to own. Okay. And so miners uh, will get the fees related to the process of these transactions. But really what they're after is that new cryptocurrency reward. Uh, they can either keep that new cryptocurrency. They can sell it on the open market. Now, the reward varies depending on the blockchain and the current demand of this. 
Uh, but I'll point out for like Bitcoin, I mean, the reward's pretty substantial. It's like $250,000 based off the current fair market price of Bitcoin. That obviously will change depending on if the price are up or is up or down. Uh, if demand is low, then the system can actually reassess and will reward a lower amount because demand is lower and, and there's just not as many transactions. But if there's a ton of demand, you know, the, the reward can go up and you can actually make even more money. Now, for mining, for settling transactions, there's two primary types of mining. Uh, and one's actually, well, there's really mining and then there's staking. We'll discuss what those differences are here in a minute. Uh, but it's proof of work or POW. And basically, miners validate blocks through complex calculations. And they use what's called the consensus protocol uh, between multiple miners to verify that transaction. And then you also have what's called proof of stake. Uh, blocks are validated through the actual users in the system themselves. And the actual users of Ethereum, and this is primarily, primarily an Ethereum thing, uh, validate and uh, process the transaction and then earn uh, rewards based off of their staking of the Ethereum. Okay, so how is this actual mining done? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Cryptocurrency and mining is done with sophisticated and expensive computer hardware. Okay, uh, The mining process uh, requires that you have some specific hardware on your machine to be able to uh, do this. Uh, specifically, what the is used is the computer's graphics processing unit um, or the GPU. The GPU on a computer is the thing that makes the display work. So you can see your applications, you can watch a video on YouTube and more. Uh, the GPU, in contrast to the CPU, the central processing unit, is really good at specific types of math calculations, which are great for displaying images and great for calculating hashes inside of a cryptocurrency block. Now, we've also kind of moved to another type of cryptocurrency mining applica uh, hardware application called Application-Specific Integrated Circuits, or ASICs. Um, these are like stripped-down computers that are like purpose-built just for blockchain mining. Uh, and this is really where you know people are focusing their efforts now on blockchain mining. Rather than kind of build just general use PCs that could run Windows or something else, They've really kind of stripped down and just created physical hardware that will support the process of, of calculating cryptocurrency the most efficient way possible. And uh, these application-specific circuits, I mean, they do one thing and one thing only. And they, they hash and, and process Bitcoin or hash and process Ethereum or something else like there. Now, something you should know is it create it requires a crazy amount of power to be able to mine. Uh, to the point that it is really uneconomical for 99% of people. Uh, I mean, if, you, if you've got a data center set up in the middle of, uh, you know, the California desert and you've got unlimited solar power, then it might make sense. But if you're on a grid like where I am, where electricity you pay by uh, kilowatt hour, I mean, it's stupid expensive to be able to, uh, to operate. Uh, there have been some reports that I've read that a single Bitcoin transaction can take as much as 1.7 kilowatt hours of electricity, costing as much as $176 uh, to be able to process that transaction. And the more popular cryptocurrencies become, the more complex and more detailed the um, uh, the mining process has become, and it's it correspondingly required more energy for this complex process. And it's not just a single miner. Transactions are typically verified and mined by lots of people worldwide all the time. 
So because of this, I mean, it, it's the multiple power of people processing these transactions. That's how we can get up to, you know, 1700 kilowatts or 176 bucks. Uh, I've read reports that cryptocurrency mining, specifically Bitcoin, uses the equivalent power consumption of the country of Ireland every single day. And that was as of a couple of years ago. I wouldn't be surprised if it's expanded. So you might be thinking, self, should I go ahead and start mining cryptocurrency? And the reality is nah, probably not. Uh, there can be and there are solo miners or solo groups of companies that work independently. But I mean, this is this has been cannibalized by by so many different types of people and, and companies and groups over the years that I mean, just a, a single off person isn't going to make any money doing this, frankly. Uh, so it's just not really possible. Now, what they can do is you can join what's called a mining pool where you pull together several different resources and different people and different uh, computers where we all work together. We all share resources. We all work on a cryptographic hash and a mine batch settlement together. And if we make money, we make money and, and we share those funds correspondingly. Now, what are these people actually doing while they're solving problems? Um, crypto asset miners are essentially auditing or verifying the transactions before being added to the blockchain, and they're doing so as quickly and as efficiently as they possibly can. And they're looking to make sure that uh, users aren't spending coins that aren't theirs, they're not double spending out of their accounts, and, and more. Okay, That's ultimately what that's, this particular process does. Now, there's two different methods that you can choose to do with mining and lots of different ways that you could choose to potentially uh, uh, different connections, selections of hardware, different selections of, uh, of um, you know, software, different configurations and things that you might want to choose to use. But uh, uh, it's really going to be set up on like the style of mining set by the cryptocurrency you're choosing to work with. As an example, uh, most cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin included, utilize what's called proof of work. Okay, now this is like the standard one. Um, it's definitely the biggest out of the two. Even proof of stake, Ethereum is moving towards that. It's not there currently as of the time of the recording. It's still proof of work. So this is pretty much the standard method. Although multiple cryptocurrencies and public blockchains are looking to move elsewhere. So proof of work is a decentralized consensus protocol where miners work independently of each other uh, and they work to solve arbitrary mathematical puzzles. That uh, uh, kind of an interesting thing, right, to, to kind of think through here. It's it's an a uh, um, uh, it's basically, you know, Bitcoin when it generates this uh, this. Uh, it's block, you know, it's a giant puzzle. It's a giant jigsaw puzzle, okay? And if you could put all the right pieces in all the right orders and ultimately solve that puzzle and see what that picture looks like, well, guess what? Um, you can uh, essentially solve that puzzle and then you ultimately win, win that reward, okay? And the puzzle itself is arbitrary every single time. But think of it as not just a simple jigsaw puzzle that you saw on the floor, but think of it as like a, uh, a million by million square puzzle with a billion trillion different cost possibilities. And uh, none of the pieces look the same, nor are they even the same shape. Um, that's kind of how complicated this proof of work uh, is. It's something way beyond the ability um, that a human could physically solve on their own. It's just not enough time. So that's why like, you know, the GPU and the specific hardware um, is require because it is just, so complex. 
So the miners uh, will work through this puzzle, and this puzzle, again, represents the individual transactions in it. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to detect tampering through these hashes. And a hash, we'll take a look here in a moment, is basically just a long string of numbers that, uh, you know, that, it, that looks random. It looks like gibberish uh, to 99% of people. Um, and with respect to this, it, it's, it's something that the computer itself is, uh, trying to solve and trying to be able to, um, uh, be able to, uh, kind of work through. Um, and as it kind of solves this particular puzzle, it, uh, it's just kind of, uh, you know, it will just essentially work through it. And then once it solves it, then that block is essentially settled and then it's added to the blockchain. Now, these hashes, these random long strings, and again, we'll take a look at that here in a moment, is, a, uh, is an example of a one-way function, okay? We feed data into this particular function, and uh, when the data comes out of this, it's not the original value, okay? So we feed in data, and I'm going to give you an example here in a minute. We'll, we're going to use a SHA-256 hash uh, algorithm. And the data that comes in um, will get fed through this algorithm and will spit out this jumbling of characters. Now, you can't take that jumbling of characters and feed it back through the algorithm and get the same response. It just it just won't work that way. OK, uh, additionally, there's this that's what encryption is. I mean, encryption is a process of obfuscation. And, and there's this whole series of super complex mathematical operations that are ha- happening behind the scenes that are truthfully way above my pay grade. Uh, that kind of make that possible. Uh, but what you need to know about hashing algorithms, what you need to know about encryption is that you have a public key and a private key. The public key allows you to encrypt something, but you cannot use that same public key to decrypt it to get that same value. Um, the private key, which is the other in, uh, key that gets generated when you're using not only in crypto, but really any encryption, that's what you can do to unsign or sorry to uh to unencrypt that encrypted value to ultimately see what it is and so it's a one-way street once something's been encrypted unless you have the uh, private key you can't decrypt it and you cannot take the data that has been encrypted and feed it back through the algorithm and get the original value now once this process is done okay and that valid hash is found essentially we settled and solved that block well, that miner will then broadcast it to all the other miners inside the network saying, hey, I figured out block 7532. Don't worry about it anymore. And they will verify that block. They will verify that that is the correct algorithm solution. Uh, and then once you have consensus, it will then ultimately get added to the blockchain and it'll be there forever. Okay. Now, it's important to note with respect to proof of work in the context of public blockchains, only the first miner will see the block reward, but miners can still participate in the transaction fees that, is, that are associated with it. So you can still make money on this even if you're not the guy solving the reward. But the fees are a fraction of what the block reward is. The block reward uh, in the context of Bitcoin is like six Bitcoin. And at the time of this writing, it's several hundred thousand dollars. And it used to be even more than that. And there's this whole process of Bitcoin later on um, with splitting and reduction. And, and I'll talk about that here in a minute. But uh, that's why miners do this. It's not because of the fees. The fees aren't exciting to these people. It's the reward. It's the fact if I can do this quickly, I'm going to get this huge reward that potentially could be hundreds of thousand dollars. And there's a new block every couple of minutes that pops up. So it's, it's a new opportunity. And every block is distinct from the block before it. 
Now, what does a hash look like? Okay, so as I talked about, a cryptocurrency hash is a long string of what seems to be random characters. Uh, well, it's actually 64-bit. It's a 64-character hexadecimal string uh, that is a combination of letters and numbers, and it represents an encrypted value. And every hash is unique. It's never existed before and never will exist again. It is That hash is created because of the unique nature of those transactions that are processed, plus some other random data that gets popped in, including dates and times, that plops out this random encrypted value. Okay. Uh, and then miners will solve the hash through brute force, uh, cre- quickly creating as many uh, nonces as they can. And nonces are, are basically just like a solution to this particular puzzle. And it's a, a number that's only used once. And it's essentially that key for solving that hash. And the first person that can essentially figure that out, well, you know, then they're going to go ahead and they're going to get that that result. Okay, they're going to be able to solve that answer and then signal to the other blockchain uh, miners that, hey, I'm the one who actually got this and and they will be the one that get that actual reward. So how do you win for a given block? Well, I've got a, a picture here that kind of shows you. Okay, so the it'll spit out a target, you know, essentially what the block looks like. And uh, the computer, the miner on that on that machine is essentially going to try to decrypt this. And it's going to try different combinations, different letters, different numbers uh, until it finds the correct solution. If it finds certain things that do not meet the specific cryptographic standards, like, for example, this transaction here only has 16 zeros. The target is 17. Well, we know that doesn't meet the standard, so it'll be kicked out. Uh, you know, and it has different checksums and check digits that are there, like where it expects, for example, a alpha character if there's a numeric character. Well, we know that's not going to meet the cryptographic standards. Again, it, it's kicked out. Okay. Um, and the miner who, you know, successfully figures all this out and settles the, that batch, processes that batch, will ultimately will get that, uh, will ultimately get that, uh, that block reward, which is the thing that they're really, what they're really into. Okay, I want to give you an example of what hashing looks like. So let's go ahead and switch over and let me show you a couple things here which might be kind of interesting to look at for hashing. So uh, I'm on a website here, passwordgenerators.net, and they've got this thing called the SHA hash generator, SHA-256, which is a, one of the better standards that are out there. And what this is kind of really kind of cool about this is it gives you a way where you can put some text in and it'll show you what the encrypted value would be. Now, this isn't the the best way of doing it traditionally um, and technically for really what you would end up doing with a with a I'm just showing you the uh, the algorithm itself to really encrypt something. You'd need to generate both a public and a private key. Uh, the public key is what you're going to use to encrypt a value. The private key is what you're going to use to unencrypt the value. I'm just showing you the output of a hash and what this looks like. And it's crazy because you can just put in some text here. And something really simple is like uh, my name. So let's just say Steven. Okay. And what you're seeing down here, here's the hashing algorithm of this. Okay. Steven M. Yas. And notice, okay, over here for my name, here's the output of that SHA algorithm. Okay, so we got 93DCED, blah, blah, blah. Let me just take the period out of M. Okay, let me just take the period out. And notice the second I take that period out, literally every single character in this changes. Not one character, not three characters, literally all of them uh, change. And so, again, I'll put that period back in, and you'll see the first couple of letters here went from 93DCED to 05E9F2D, so on and so forth. So, 
uh, it really does verify and, and change things. Okay, if we just change this from an uppercase S to a lowercase s, notice the whole algorithm uh, will spit out a different value. Okay, and this process of obfuscation is really what gives encryption its, its strength is that you can't take this string of characters here you know, and be able to, especially once you've signed it with a private key or a public key, you can't get the same thing back, okay? This, unless you knew the private key, you couldn't decrypt this and ultimately get that answer back. And so uh, that's the process that we're talking about here. That that level of encryption is what kind of kicks out that really strong um, code, you know, that, that the miners are ultimately trying to find. They're trying to take this value and then reconcile it back to the original value and, and ultimately get the uh, uh, the transactions and settle them and be able to, uh, to solve that problem. Let me show you kind of a cool tool here. This is a, a website called Etherscan. Uh, this is a what we refer to as a blockchain explorer. And a blockchain explorer is a website that allows you to be able to see into a uh, blockchain in real time. There's explorers for every type of blockchain. Uh, it could be, you know, Bitcoin, it could be Litecoin, it could be whatever, you know. And in real time, we can essentially see everything related to this particular technology. So simple stuff like the price, the market capitalization, the transactions that are being processed over here. Uh, I'm going to point out real quick, see this thing over here? It says gas price, okay? This is how much it costs to put in a, uh, a transaction at the moment. Um, and to get it processed through the system, regardless of the quantity of money you're processing, the current price is $5.98 currently to process a transaction through Ethereum. And this also gives you a sense of the difficulty uh, of this and how many transactions are being processed through. So it's being moved at uh, 14,278 terahash, um, which is pretty difficult. And this also gives you a sense of how uh, frequent you know, these transactions are getting through through that rate. Now, if we look over here on the left-hand side under these blocks settings, okay, each of these represent a block, and you can see that they're sequential. So you got 861, 862, 63, 64. We can click into these blocks, okay? And so we could see that this block, okay, block number 865 here, okay, contains 203 transaction and 60 contract internal transactions. Okay, it's been mined by... Okay, and then here it's going to show us essentially the miner who is operating this. And we can see what their block reward was. Okay, so uh, for this person mining this transaction, they got 2.12 uh, Ether. And, uh, you know, I mean, just to put it into perspective, the current fair market price of Ethereum is 2110 bucks. So let's say they got a little over $4,200 here for processing this transaction. Okay. So we can come down here, we can see a little bit more. We can also get a sense of their fees and how much they got in fees at the moment uh, and what it took to actually kind of create this. Now, we can also, because of the nature of blockchain, because everything is transparent, uh, we could, for example, click this mind by address and it's going to show us the person who mined this. So this is somebody, I have no idea who, I know the information is public, but I don't necessarily get to see you know, a name attached to it. I don't see a social security number or a tax ID number, but this was mined by miner 99E8. Uh, this miner, for example, currently has a, an Ethereum balance of 7,124. They've got $15 million of equivalent uh, currency in this account. And we can actually see here uh, all the transactions um, related to this particular person. So there's a fair amount of money um, set up. 
Now, if we click over here under the transactions and we click 203 transactions, we can go in here and we can see all the transactions that make up this particular block. You know, so we can see, is it a swap? Is it a transfer? Is it an exchange? Uh, if we see over here, here's a big one for 47 Ether. So let's click this. Uh, let's click this specific transaction. We can see some more information about this. Uh, and if there's any metadata associated with it, we can see also where the money came from and where it's going. So it came from this account. Okay. And this account right here has uh, about $38 million in it. And it was going to this account. And this account has about $100,000 in it. And you could create as many accounts and wallet addresses as you might need. Uh, I can tell you, sometimes you can see this, for example, like this Kraken 4. This is a known address. Kraken is an exchange in the crypto market. So you can actually see where those transactions are going. Uh, this is one of the... Um, this is going to be a huge wallet. And in fact, we can see that it actually is. It's got 89,000 Ethereum in it with a market fair market value at the moment of $189 million. And it's an exchange. So it's like, imagine you can go look at the bank account of the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, that's like what this is. Uh, but this Ether scan, I mean, this really kind of gives you the insight necessary to really kind of understand everything as it relates to everything as it matters, you know, and it also gives you a sense of... Uh, um, you know, the mining, it gives you a sense of like the hashing, the encryption, all of this. And in fact, uh, we can see here, you know, the, the difficulty of Ethereum has only gone up as more and more people are using this uh, solution. And that's why mining for the most part is not a, it's not a young man's game anymore uh, because the rewards reduce over time as well as the transaction fees will reduce over time, but the complexity goes up. It actually gets exponentially more complex. Let's explore that a little bit further. So uh, what you should know is, you know, specifically with Bitcoin, and we're going to use that as our example here, is that the rewards can vary. Now, with Bitcoin, the rewards will continue to reduce and reduce and reduce. OK, as of May of this year, at the time of the recording, uh, the current Bitcoin price is thirty one thousand dollars per coin. OK, if you're a miner, you'll get six point two five Bitcoins per blocked solve. You know, so, again, you can make a lot of money doing this. Uh, and if we look at uh, the current fair market price um, with this, I mean, it comes out to just under 200,000 uh, bucks. So your average reward per block is $193,000. So, I mean, there's still a lot of reasons to do it. Now, the reward used to be a lot higher when there weren't as many people using the system way back when. So like in 2009, if you were a super early adopter uh, and you solved a block, you would get a reward of 50 Bitcoin. Okay, in 2012, it was halved to 25. Then it was halved again in 2016 to 12.5 Bitcoin. And then halved again in 2020 at 6.25, okay? Uh, and the reason being is that there's an upper supply limit of Bitcoin of 21 million. So they're, they're slowing the introduction of new Bitcoin into the market um, continuously, okay? So the reward that you get for solving one block halves every 200,000 uh, 200,000 blocks, give or take. And uh, it's about every four years that the, re the reward will go down. Now, if you were a super early adopter and you got that 50 Bitcoin and you held on to it uh, and you kept the current fair market prices of today, let's say you never sold one, uh, I mean, you could see how it could come into a ton of money. Solving one block would be over a million and a half dollars, okay? So in 2024, we're going to see that uh, that block again reduce um, in this case, it will go down to 3.125 uh, 
uh, Bitcoin per solve. But if the price goes up, I mean, as it continuously happens, that could still be a fair amount of money. So that would be in 2024 and 2028, it would go down to 1.5, uh, 1.5625 uh, block uh, Bitcoin, so on and so forth. I'll point out Bitcoin doesn't split. There's never a split of Bitcoin, um, but rather what will happen is that uh, you can get fractions of a Bitcoin, I think up to a a millionth or a billionth, I can't remember, but uh, you you get fractions of it. But the actual coin itself is still intact. So, uh, but at the same time, you're going to get less, as I sh- as you can see here with this curve, it goes down. Uh, if the price goes up, you can still make more money. Uh, but what you will need to know is that the difficulty of this will just continue to get harder and harder and harder. Uh, as more and more people use it, there's more and more miners, supply and demand type thing here. Man goes up, supply goes down. Uh, So it's going to become more difficult to earn uh, that Bitcoin. Now, a big issue with respect to proof of work is the energy consumption, um, hugely. I mean, that's one of the most um, concerning aspects of this technology is that it it requires huge, vast resources to be able to do. And it's very competitive. Um, and also, I mean, I mean, just you've got all these miners verifying the same transaction over and over and over and over again. Um, I'll show you with Ethereum here. If we were to go look at a specific transaction, and we were to look at a transaction over uh, over time, uh, you'll see, for example, uh, that sometimes, I mean, these transactions uh, can have sometimes millions of verifications, and I mean that's energy being used every single time. Uh, to verify those transactions. And that's not always, uh, you know, if you were to think about it, I mean, not really kind of the best way of, of handling it. And uh, uh, that could be just unnecessarily expensive for uh, for people uh, to be able to consume, okay? So there's another alternative here, and that's where that proof of stake really kind of comes in, okay? Uh, let me just show you one transaction real quick, and then we'll, I'll talk a little bit about proof of stake. So we're back here over our chain explorer and what we're looking at here, we're looking at the individual transactions within a, a wallet. And I want to point out that these transactions are not that old. You'll notice most of these are, are, for example, 17 hours old, a little bit older than that. If we click into this specific hash, so here's that hashed encrypted algorithm. Okay, we can see that it is successful. It has been added to the blockchain and here's the added blockchain address. Okay, and if we scroll down here, uh, to this block, I want you to see that this has been verified and how many times it's been mined. It's been mined 4,735 times. So that means 4,735 different miners have verified that, yes, this transaction going from this address to this address is valid. That means 4,735 people spent money and energy doing that. If we go to stuff that's super old, so here's stuff over a year, and we click into that same algorithm, you'll see that this hash rate Sorry, not the hash rate, but the confirmation goes up. So this hash, uh, and this transaction, which is over uh, almost two years old at this point, has been verified 3.6 million times. Again, that's 3.6 million different people verifying this transaction, spending energy to do so. And so that's the big issue with proof of work is that it just requires a crazy amount of energy to be able to do. Some would say an unsustainable amount of energy. 
Okay. Well, that's where proof of stake comes in. Now, proof of stake is an alternative to proof of work. And with proof of stake, rather than having all these miners always competing for this block reward and just burning dinosaur bones to power their data centers to make this possible, we say, you know what? What if the people who actually use the the blockchain, this particular cryptocurrency, what if they validate these transactions? And instead of making it a competition thing, you you basically put your money into a bank and then every so often you're going to be selected to be the one who counts the bills for the new guy walking in or the new transaction that walk in. Okay. And uh, existing owners validate these transactions based off of their existing holdings and it makes it a little bit more fair with respect to how new blocks enter and who gets those block rewards. And so it changes the way that transactions are verified from like completely being a competition based and he who has the biggest computer and can burn the most dinosaur bones wins to rather kind of it's being assigned to a miner who wants to participate and they might not get a block the next time around, but you know, maybe every so often they get one of these. And so coin owners, the people who are associated with this, they stake their coins, uh, meaning they kind of lock them up the best way. And this is not a perfect uh, uh, metaphor but it, uh, to to it, but it's kind of like they, they if you become a validator, you're, you're essentially saying, hey, I'm trustworthy. I'm going to be the guy who's going to count these, these transactions, verify using my computer. Well, it's kind of like putting your money into a CD. You're like banking on the bank that, you know, they're going to, you know, pay you back at some point. And in exchange for locking your money up in a CD, you get interest. It's the same thing here. You know, you you lock up your Ethereum in a smart contract for a period of time. And um, in exchange for that, you'll get interest payments or, or in this case, a mine reward for, for doing that. And then the validators are selected randomly to validate or mine those blocks. Uh, the system randomizes who gets this. And instead of being competition-based, it's like proof of work. It's kind of randomized in this way. And um, it's a more fair process, in my opinion, as well as it requires significantly less energy uh, and requires because, because ultimately requires less validation than what you'll see in proof of work. Uh, so to summarize this proof of stake process, you might say it's kind of like validation shared across a network uh, instead of a competition. So we all kind of step up. We all have a, 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 a you know, a, a something to play here uh, and we all work together. So here is a comparison between these two. I'm not going to read through this slide, but if you'd like to get a deeper understanding, because this is one of the more complex topics, I got a great table here that hopefully make it crystal clear for you. We can read and contrast uh, between these different policies and, and procedures. There's differences in security. There's differences in rewards. There's differences in how they operate and work. But uh, hopefully it'll give you a little bit of a sense of uh, of what you could do and how to do it. Now, you might say to yourself, self, this sounds like a good idea. Maybe I should become a miner. Maybe I should go out there and I should consider uh, mining and, you know, doing this. And I mean, it's a free country. You're more than welcome to. Uh, but I'm going to point out, I mean, you and literally millions of people around the world are, are doing this. And um, the amount of money you could earn is directly going to be correlated to the speed of the infrastructure and the computers that you're operating. You got to, I mean, like the difference between like the bleeding cutting edge stuff and stuff that is just like a day behind a little bit older is like night and day. I mean, with proof of work, um, if you don't have the latest, the greatest, the fastest, and you can contribute as much energy as possible it's like the difference of making money or not making money. Okay. So really it's not, 
I don't want to dissuade anybody from doing anything they don't, they, they want to do. Do your own research on it. But the biggest limitations with respect to whether or not you're going to be successful is what is your access to be able to get expensive cutting edge hardware and how much energy can you be able to consume? Uh, if you've got an endless supply of energy you don't have to pay for and you've got access to great hardware, you might want to consider it. Now, you can also mine different types of cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is going to be the most difficult. It's going to be the most competitive. Other cryptocurrencies will be less expensive. And there are tools, which we're going to take a look at here in a moment, that can help you estimate what your potential uh, cost as well as your savings might be. Let's go take a look at this. So this is a website called Crypto Compare. And uh, what you can do here is you can compare different cryptocurrencies. So we got Ethereum here at the moment. Let's go take a look at Bitcoin. Uh, you can see there's other ones, including Dash, Litecoin, and others. And the first thing is going to be your hashing power. This is like the speed of your infrastructure, like how much juice you got in your rig or multiple computers to be able to process. And this is uh, measured in, in hash speed, hashes per second. So uh, kilohash, megahash, gigahash, terahash. At the moment, we are processing things in terahash. Uh, if we look at the Ether Explorer here as an example, it'll give you an ex it'll tell you what the current difficulty is. So, at the moment, it's fourteen thousand two hundred eighty-seven terahash is the current uh, difficulty of this. So we'll come over here and we'll say fourteen terahash. Okay, let's do uh, actually fifteen if you want to be cutting edge, and we're going to do a, uh, Ethereum as our example here. Da -da -da. Let's do fifteen. Okay. All right. And then this is going to tell you what your power consumption is going to be and how much juice is it going to take to run. Now, 15 terahash, you're probably talking, uh, let's just say, you know, a couple thousand watts of power to be able to process this. Okay. And then you got to plug in your, your price of electricity, you know, so let's just say 18 uh, cents. Okay. So, I mean, if you could process at 15 um, terahash, you know, 15 uh Wait, is that 15,000? What is that? Oh, 15,000 terahash. Okay. Okay, so if you could process it this, I mean, this will show you that you can make a tremendous amount of money. This is literally like every possible computer in the world processing at this at the moment. Uh, this will kind of give you a sense of how much Ethereum, and, and this is roughly what you could expect. Nobody processes at 15,000 uh, terahash. You're really going to be processing down here in the gigahash, and it's going to be, Probably, if you're lucky, like one gigahash type of a thing, maybe two gigahash as an example here. So a two gigahash at 3,000 watts at 18 cents a kilowatt hour, this will kind of give you a sense of the kind of money you can make. Uh, you know, if you're running a data center with a ton of juice behind it, you know, maybe 2,000 gigahash, and uh, you got unlimited power, you know, let's just say down here to zero, I mean, you can make a ton of money. But that's just not realistic for most people. Now, Bitcoin, on the other hand, Bitcoin, it's going to have a lot more. Um, it's going to be a lot more expensive. Um, and it's going to cost a lot more. So the current, I'm just looking this up here in another screen. Uh, the current hash rate, hash rate for uh, Bitcoin is over 221 terahashes a second. So, I mean, a lot more people that are going to be uh, contributing and it's going to cost a lot more to be able to do this. So if you were to keep all things equivalent and mine uh, Bitcoin at 15 terahashes, uh, you're going to lose a lot of money, negative $74 a month. But if you mined Ethereum, you would make money. So, I mean, that's where you can kind of 
Uh, you can kind of, oops, sorry. Here, let's uh, change that here to 15. Compare apples to apples. Uh, you could lose money on Bitcoin, but you could make money on one other one. Okay. And this isn't an apples to apples comparison between this. There's other things that you need to consider. The point of the matter is you can estimate this. And the biggest thing is going to be how much infrastructure speed do you have and how much power is it going to take? Let's go ahead and have a review question. Which mining protocol is performed by the holders of the actual crypto assets? So if you have the crypto asset, what type of uh, confirmation could you choose to do? Uh, well, frankly, you can choose whatever you want. It's going to be whatever is decided by the technology. Um, but would it be proof of work? Nope. Proof of work is mining in its traditional sense done by the independent miners. Uh, proof of mining is nothing. I've been, that's, not a, that's a made up word as is proof of Internet. The correct answer here is going to be proof of stake. Now, as I mentioned, you get the block reward, which is the big prize that everybody wants, but there's also fees to process these transactions as well. So there's a fee to move money through that public blockchain, okay? And the price to process that transaction is gonna vary based off of the number of transactions being processed concurrently. Um, so, I mean, if there's, it's a supply and demand thing, you know, so if there's a ton of transactions that need to be processed, the price goes up. If there are less transactions to be processed and there's slack capacity, the price will go down. Um, and it is important for you to kind of know what that current price is going to be because it could be the difference between a couple of cents or several dollars. Or in the case of Bitcoin, um, it could be really expensive. So it's important to kind of know that and uh, to kind of get a sense of what that uh, of what that will take. Okay. So so the minor fees are transaction fees, and they will also get that reward if they're the first person to get uh, that job done. Uh, miners can choose what transactions and what blocks to verify. So they do have some decision making. If you, for example, don't pay a lot of money, they're not going to verify your transaction or if you're not at least paying market rate. Uh, you could choose to pay more. In the Ethereum market, for example, you can pay more gas, basically offer a higher fee, and they'll jump right to it. You know, think of it as kind of like the fast pass at Disneyland um, with the Genie Plus thing. You know, you can get the normal line and stand in line for three hours or for 20 bucks per day, you can get the Genie Plus thing and skip the line and be able to go right up to the front. So the more you pay, the more your transaction will get verified. Eventually, everything will get verified. It's just how much do you want to pay. Now, the processing fee can vary from a couple of cents to several hundred dollars, just depending on what the blockchain and what that demand is. Let me show you what that looks like. So we're here on Etherscan again, and uh, we're looking specifically at their gas tracker. So gas is how you process transaction inside the system. So if you wanted to pay a little, well, the low fee at the moment is 183 Huawei, Okay. Uh, that's roughly $7.15. If you did so, your transaction would process in three minutes. This is moderate at the moment. You can see here there's not a very big difference between the low and the average. Uh, so most people are paying 180 somewhere around there, so $7.15 per transaction. You could imagine if you were doing a $10 transaction, you wouldn't want to do this because it would cost you $7 to process that transaction. But if you're doing a, a million-dollar transaction, it costs the same amount. Now, if you really want to 
put some gas on this, you pay the high fee at 195 and it will process in less than 30 seconds. So the difference between being three minutes and 30 seconds. And this will give you a sense of like what the fee has been over the last couple of people. We can also see the people who are uh, charging a lot as well as who are spending a lot, you know, and how much money that they have made in fees. Uh, so this Uniswap, for example, has spent $255,000. Uh, Arbitrum here uh, spent, uh, I'm sorry, um, this kind of gives you uh, the accounts that are consuming a lot of gas. And this over here is are going to be the accounts that are paying a lot of gas. And so it kind of gives you a sense of how much money uh, people are making actually processing these transactions. Now, a question that usually gets popped up here is what happens with Bitcoin specifically when you get to that upper 21 million? Okay, well, as of January of this year, about uh, 18, 19 million Bitcoins have been mined and, and put into circulation. Uh, there's about 2.1 million Bitcoins still to be mined, and the total circulating population will be capped at 21 million. Now, at the current consumption rate of how they're halving this and releasing additional supply, we're not going to reach that upper limit until 2140. So I'll be long gone by that point in time. And at that point in time, I mean, it's hard to know exactly what will happen. They, the Bitcoin could adopt and go some different directions. The miners could adopt new principles and go different ways. It's hard to know. Uh, but the reward will disappear once it reaches that 21 million. And at that point, miners will still make money, but they're only going to make money from the transaction fees. That huge reward of uh, the block of releasing new Bitcoin will go away. So, I mean, they'll still make money. There'll still be a reason to use this, uh, but it's solely going to be related to those transaction fees, and those fees probably will go up. All right, what is the purpose of charging a fee when processing a blockchain transaction? Okay, is the fee a mandatory tax payment? Nope. The fee pays for the crypto exchange processing transactions in USD. That doesn't even make sense. Uh, no, it has nothing to do with that. The correct answer here is the fee is paid to the miner or validator to settle and verify that transaction. Alrighty, now that we've got a good understanding of mining, let's go ahead and move into our next topic. And our next topic is going to be other major crypto and uh, blockchain Let's call them uh, categories, uh, interest things, things that you need to know kind of in and around crypto space um, that are kind of subsets of the technology itself and, and what they're used for. And the first thing I want to bring up with respect uh, to crypto is this whole idea of, of decentralized finance or DeFi. And this kind of permeates into so many other, uh, other aspects of the technology. It's important to kind of get this topic first. And with decentralized finance or DeFi, as the as people believe, it's not really a technology, a platform, a thing, a service, a product. It's more of a concept. It's a philosophical belief is probably the best way of describing it. Uh, it's a category of, of emerging technology that's, again, intended to remove third parties in financial transactions. And so DeFi is all about reducing the needs for traditional financial institution like banks and credit cards and companies related to finance uh, that normally charge for their services and rather connecting consumer to consumer, consumer to vendor together and let them work together. Um, some of the main components of DeFi are going to be things like stable coins, which are uh, cryptocurrencies backed in some sort of real world tangible value. 
there's certainly software and hardware that kind of enables this. It kind of brings it all together under one roof. And the hope is that you can participate in any type of financial transaction as long as you're connected to the internet. And you could lend you know, directly lend money to people halfway around the world. You know, let's say it's a farmer in Uganda and he needs 500 bucks for seed and and feed for his animals and uh, he'll pay you back at some point, you know, with interest. Well, instead of kind of going through an institutional lender, this person could make a, a post somewhere. You could decide that you want to help him out. You could write a smart contract that will you know, uh, encumber that, that farmer's crops and, you know, so that uh, he has to pay you back at some point in time. And if he doesn't, there's other things that could happen. And, and the smart contract essentially can, can facilitate this entire transaction without the need of getting in some sort of institution involved. Uh, you know, you could conduct trade with a, in a company halfway around the world that's going to manufacture things for you, but you directly connect and talk to each other. Uh, and this whole centralization thing can go away, that essentially we all can work together and, and leverage the platforms to provide security, trust, data sharing, and more. Now, DeFi, again, is much more of a thought. It's a philosophy than anything else. Uh, I will point out, you know, there's reasons institutions exist and there's reason regulations are there. And at the moment, there's not there. Uh, it's just not there. Now, a central principle of DeFi is this idea of smart contracts. Now, smart contracts are originally created really as part of the Ethereum blockchain, but it has since spread out to many other types of blockchains as well. And a smart contract is a computer protocol that's intended to digitally facilitate, verify, enforce, and negotiation of a contract. And it allows for the performance of credible uh, uh, transactions without the need of third parties. Uh, when you create a smart contract, you can essentially create something that's trackable, enforceable, verifiable, and irreversible uh, between different parties and allow them to be able to interact and connect with each other, which is which is pretty cool. And so with smart contracts, uh, you could essentially imagine you create a contract, you know, an agreement, and, and you get a DocuSign and you all sign it and, you know, kind of work together on that. Well, you know, that that uh, smart contract can do a lot of things for you and it provides a high degree of trust. For example, it can serve as a multi-signature account. You know, we've got money in a crypto account and we can't transfer or use this until one, two, two thirds, 50%, whatever you choose to write in your contract, agree uh, and consent to, to follow. So it's like a, you know, um, a way of kind of providing a high degree of trust essentially in, in an account, you know, where, where a certain number of people have to agree before the money can be spent. Uh, it can manage agreements between users. Let's say if one person buys insurance from the other and you, you verify or you provide collateral to something, you could essentially write it inside of a smart contract. If somebody defaults, where you provided this collateral, that is uh, something that, that certainly can be seized and collected upon. I can provide utility to other contracts, you know, for example, software libraries, you know, we use libraries to build other applications, same way here. So you could have a uh, contract that specifically is just around the signatories and, and providing utility value to that contract as well. Uh, you could use this to store information about an application, domain registration, membership records, loyalty points. I'm going to share with you in a later section some of the private blockchains that are out there that are using smart contracts for like customer loyalty points. Now, one of the best examples of where smart tracks are being used are creating derivatives on 
the primary blockchains. Uh, so the primary blockchains are going to be, again, like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Ethereum is its own thing, but you can do and create additional kind of subset ledgers that ultimately are using Ethereum as their backing technology, but they're their own thing. So you have like what we call coins and tokens. So Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum is its own thing. It is a coin, but you can also create what are called tokens. Um, and so a, a coin is going to be something that represents a unit of value or transactional power inside of a token, inside of a blockchain. But a token, on the other hand, is a representation of a particular asset or utility that resides on top of another blockchain. Um, so there are plenty of examples of, of tokens um, that exist that uh, have that do not have their own blockchain, but rather are leveraging the capabilities of an existing one. And so there are um, there are uh, tools that are out there that specialize in, for example, like uh, there are t- tokens that are using for trading fine art. There are tokens that are being used in finance for public companies here in the United States uh, and more. Um, and some of these tokens, essentially, they, they're not their own thing uh, or an NFT, actually, a non-fungible token is also an example, like a piece of art or something like that. But they use an existing blockchain like Ethereum to exist. And a token could represent any type of asset, uh, asset that's fungible or non-fungible and tradable uh, from commodities to loyalty points. But think of it as a way of them being able to leverage blockchain technology without having to go and create all the underlying tech itself. It's a derivative from the primary tech. Now, tokens are created, funded, and distributed typically through what's called an ICO or initial coin offering. And ICOs are used to raise capital to expand just in the same way that you would for an IPO, initial public offering. You can use it to uh, uh, create something and, and make a company do something. And tokens, again, are an example of that smart contract. Now, an ICO, uh, just like an IPO where you can go out and raise money, an IPO does the uh, where it, but you're going out to the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ with an IPO or an ICO, it's the cryptocurrency equivalent of this. And so cryptocurrency has evolved as a mechanism for organizations to launch new businesses and to raise capital. Uh, but instead of offering equity securities, you instead are offering your own unique coin or token. Now, why do people do this? Well, to raise capital or to cash out, one of the two, you know. And so ICOs are becoming an option now, and they're faster, they're less expensive, and all, almost virtually unregulated, uh, although that might not be a good thing. you know. And we'll talk about some of the uh, issues as we kind of talk through some of the different uh, applications here. But uh, with an ICO, you essentially can go out, raise coin, you know, raise, you know, offer this coin. People give you other types of cryptocurrency, you then sell those cryptocurrency, and then you have cash to do something. Uh, there's been moderate degrees of success with this. I mean, this was super popular in like 2018 and 19, uh, but most of those companies haven't really survived. Some have, some have prospered, just like all businesses. Uh, I will point out again, not super regulated, but that might could change in the in the coming years. Let's do our next review question. What are the major characteristics of a smart contract? Okay, can a smart contract facilitate, verify, and enforce negotiation of an actual contract. You betcha it can. It allows for the performance of credible transactions without third parties. Absolutely. And the transactions themselves are trackable, enforceable, and irreversible. 
Yes. Correct answer here is all of the above. Now, it might be kind of weird to kind of think about like this whole idea of like what is exactly a smart contract. I mean, but just think about like an agreement, like a contract you would normally sign, but written in computer code rather than in the English language. It's and it's automatically enforceable. It'll do whatever you, you tell it to do. OK, a couple other ancillary topics around this, too. And these are more compelling um, for businesses. I'd say really kind of anything else. Uh, in the last couple of years, we've seen the rise of cryptocurrency custody solutions. Um, due to the specific nature of cryptocurrency being very volatile and also having risk associated with somebody stealing your private key and being able to potentially compromise your wallet and steal money. Well, people are like, hey, man, is there like a bank I can put this stuff in and, and be able to sleep better at night? Well, yeah, that's where cryptocurrency custodians can come in. And uh, custodianship would be a good option for institutions, organizations that have regulatory requirements, high net individuals that don't want to directly manage. Just like I wouldn't want to uh, you know, have a mattress with $10 million under it and I put it in a bank. Well, that's what custodianships do, but they are definitely, definitely not banks. And depending on your business, you might need to do this. Uh, for example, if you are subject to SEC regulations, specifically the Dodd-Frank Act, uh, stipulates that institutional investors investors with customer assets worth more than 150 grand, well, you have to store those with a qualified custodian. You just, again, can't put it under your mattress. Uh, and often custodians will have m- much more complex and comprehensive security procedures. They'll often have insurance against your holdings. They'll have expertise working with specific compliance and regulatory frameworks, anti-money laundering and stuff like that. And uh, it's a good option for people who want to take their security up to the next level. And you can also go up to the next level, too, by getting insurance. Um, Unlike you should know, you know, funds stored in the bank, crypto doesn't have any sort of insurance against it provided by the federal government. Like if your bank gets robbed, that money's insured by the FDIC up to 200,000 bucks. You get robbed, somebody takes your crypto, you're out of luck. Okay, so some people are choosing to pursue and get insurance policies. And so you can buy these third-party insurance policies against your holdings to insure them against data breaches, misappropriation. I'm going to point out, though, these are super infant companies. Um, The policies themselves are very expensive, and they do have a tremendous amount of conditions and limitations that you should be aware of. You need to read the policy and be crystal clear about what's expected of you for that insurance policy to apply. Most insurance companies are always looking to disclaim liability, and this is no different. Uh, some exchanges, for example, Coinbase with their Coinbase One product will even actually insure it as part of your membership to their uh, exchange. So you might be able to get it without having to go out and get a separate policy. All right. Now, we also have something called a stable coin. OK, and one of the big issues with cryptocurrency is the fact that the valuation can vary a ton. Right. You know, it can go up and go down um, seemingly just by looking at it, you know? And so uh, there's this new thing called a stable coin. And these are cryptocurrencies that are attempting to peg their market value against some sort of external reference. So, you know, for example, there's some coins that are out there that are pegged against currencies like the US dollar, the Euro, even gold, and they don't change in price. As a good example of this, there's Tether, um, you know, which is a uh, very common used crypto cryptocurrency. And Tether, Roughly equals $1, plus or minus a fraction, tiny fraction of a cent. Uh, there's also the USD coin. There's the Binance USD coin and others. Um, 
these are pegged against the dollar. So if you trade Bitcoin back to Tether, you're going to get an equivalent number of U.S. dollars associated with it. And in a nutshell, all stable coins have is some sort of stability that is going to be collateralized or backed up against some sort of real world currency or real world commodity. Now, stable coins earn revenue by charging fees, making loans through investments of their own, you know, just the same way banks just hold money and they make interest. It's the same thing with Tether or some of these other coins. They just make interest and uh, there's fees associated with buying and selling them. But if you need to get out and you don't want to cash out to U.S. dollars, it's a great way to basically keep your money in crypto, but to kind of stabilize it. Now, some uh, countries are choosing to get into the digital currency game, too. We have what are called central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. And these are a digital form of a country's fiat currency. Uh, and a CBDC is issued and regulated by the country's monetary authority or central bank. It uh, doesn't exist here in the United States, but if it did, it would be something done by the Fed, just in the same way that the U.S. dollar is done by the Fed. Uh, and what's kind of cool about these is as their central form of currency, you know, they've got better assurances, better security built into it. Um, you know, you can incorporate them into the monetary policies of the nation. And a lot of countries are exploring how CBDCs will affect their economies, their existing financial networks and more. And I'll point out there are a lot of countries that are considering using CBDCs. Uh, and in fact, there's a handful that have already done this, including the Bahamas, uh, Antigua and Barbuda, St. Kitts, St. Lucia, Grenada, Nigeria, and others. And there are over 80 other countries with CBDC projects and initiative underway in different stages of development. India, for example, said they're going to come out with one as early as 2023. Even the United States, Canada, Sweden, and more are considering projects involving CBDCs. All right, let's have our final review question and take a break. What best describes a stablecoin? Okay. All stable coins are pegged to the fair market value of Stanley, Nichols, and Troop Bucks. A great office reference here. No way. All stable coins are central bank digital currencies. No, they're not. Central bank digital currency is issued by the Central Monetary Authority, where a stable coin can be whomever. Okay. Correct answer here is a stable coin is pegged to the market value of some external reference like gold or U.S. dollars or anything for that matter. All right, folks, let's go ahead and take a break here. And when we pick back up in our next episode, we're going to go ahead and explore some different examples of blockchains, starting first with looking at some private blockchain examples that have popped up, as well as some public blockchain examples as well. We're going to look at some ways that Hyperledger Fabric is being used uh, in different businesses around the world. We'll also take a look at some different public blockchain things that you can just sign up and potentially use, stuff to hold uh, your uh, cryptocurrency or files, uh, identity management, and more. And we'll also talk a little bit about this NFT thing that seems to be in the news a lot these years. All right, folks, thank you so much for being here, and we will see you here in our next episode shortly. Thank you so much for attending our presentation and podcast for today. As a reminder, you can check out cpetoday.com for all your continuing education needs. We have courses on every topic you can think of from accounting to audit to ethics and regulation and more. Everything you need to know to stay relevant, current, and up to date with the profession. Again, check out cpetoday.com. If you're a new watcher or listener to the CPE Today podcast, again, we offer you a free course and a free credit for you to try our services. 
Pick the podcast of your choosing and use coupon code ONEFREEPODCAST at checkout to make that purchase free. If you enjoyed our presentation, please consider connecting with us on social media and let us know what you think. You can find us just about everywhere at CPE Today, uh, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and more. And please consider subscribing to us wherever you happen to receive your content. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and others. We'd love for you to leave a review and let us know what you think. It helps new listeners and watchers find our course and content. Thank you so much for your time and attention. Thank you for being in the office, and we look forward to seeing you back here soon. Take care.